And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. That's right, it's Wednesday. Uh, already get through the week. And of course, this is also, as I said yesterday, the end of the month and the end of the quarter, right? It's all right around the corner, ends up on Friday. Of course, that means we're going to kick off earnings season just starting next week after the 4th of July holiday, which falls on Tuesday, unfortunately. So Monday's markets are open, then we're closed on Tuesday, back open. So it's a holiday shortened week. We'll see what happens. But again, it is going to be kicking off the second half of the year already. I can't believe the first half of the year is already behind us. But nonetheless, um, interesting kind of economic data out yesterday. Consumer confidence actually increased yesterday. And we're seeing kind of an improvement in expectations of declining inflation expectations, et cetera, going forward. Now, what's important about that is that despite all the concerns about a near-term recession and, and those type of things, consumer confidence, and this is something we touched on in last weekend's newsletter, consumer confidence along with investor sentiment, is continuing to increase. Now, if this isn't really surprising at all uh, when you think about it, right? Because this is one of the things that the Federal Reserve has been talking about now for really the, the last year or so is this importance of reducing activity in the economy, increasing unemployment to bring down the rate of inflation. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by, you know, hiking interest rates, making things more difficult, reducing demand for, for credit, and in theory, bringing down the value of the stock market because by doing that, well, people feel less wealthy. This is the wealth effect that Ben Bernanke has talked about back in 2010 when he started quantitative easing part two of that one. Um, he said, look, we're, we're doing quantitative easing here to boost asset prices, which will increase consumer confidence. That's the wealth effect. Markets go up, people feel wealthier. So despite what else is going on, they go out and they go, well, you know, I can go ahead and afford to go on a trip or buy a new car because, you know, the value of my portfolio went up, so I have more money, right? And so that's been one thing. And this has been one of the things that has been kind of really fighting the Fed now for the last year or so is that despite what the Fed's trying to do by tightening monetary policy, rising stock markets actually ease financial conditions because of this whole idea of the wealth effect, the, right, the psychological impact on consumers that they have more money than, well, they may actually have. But this is what's been going on with the markets. That, so as the market rises, gives people more confidence and not surprising, we're now seeing because of this run in the market this year, right? Markets are up pretty handily this year. Um, we're starting to see an uptick in consumer confidence. So as consumer confidence upticks, well, unfortunately for the Fed, this is easing financial conditions. This will also increase economic activity. So remember those inflation, those uh, recession concerns that we had? Well, those may be getting put on the back burner now because as consumer confidence increases, you can expect to see a bit of an increase in economic activity, right? So this is all going to be very confounding to the Fed, which... Of course, just in a couple of weeks, we're going to have the Federal Reserve out in their July meeting talking about the next round of you know, rate hikes, et cetera. And the expectations now for the terminal rate, which is where the Fed will stop hiking rates, is now back on the rise. So 
you know, this is all kind of working contrary to kind of what's going on in the market, which is rallying very strongly now. Uh, we've had, you know, a very strong advance. And we talked about yesterday that, you know, this market is, is in a very bullish trend here. And so we need to be aware of that. But that is feeding through to this increase in confidence. Now, that may delay if you're, if you're in the camp of expecting a recession to come very shortly, and this is going to cause a big contraction in markets, that may be delayed a bit here because consumer confidence, again, as that increases, and that is a function of rising investor confidence, which is also back to getting fairly exuberant here. The fear of missing out has really kicked in here. But that's all beginning to, to filter back into sentiment and, and economic activity. So we're going to be paying very close attention to this, but this is going to be a challenge for the Fed who's trying to get unemployment to go up, right? Because they want inflation to come down. And that's the real challenge for the Fed, or this is going to be, the, this will be the challenge for the Fed, is that this very activity itself may bring inflation back into the economy. Because again, more activity, supply versus demand, that's what creates inflation. So consumers who are wanting lower rates of inflation, consumers who are wanting things to come down, may be actually working against themselves. But this also may very well keep the Federal Reserve on the stance of hiking interest rates uh, going forward, which is also not what the markets have been pricing in, which have been pricing in a rate cut. Okay. Here's what you need to know before the bell. Yesterday, the Biden administration coming out with a new potential threat to the chip industry, talking about more potential trade sanctions on China against buying U.S. chips, and particularly the A100 chips that are produced by NVIDIA uh, for artificial intelligence. Again, Washington remains deeply concerned about the impact of artificial intelligence. Lots of stuff going on there in terms of the debate between the Republicans and Democrats on, you know, bills, et cetera, to, to help kind of rein in or control this development of artificial intelligence, which has really kind of burst onto the scene this year. Artificial intelligence is not new. It's been around for 10 years. Take, uh, pick up your phone, use Siri on your Apple phone or, or, or um, you know, any of your other devices that you talk to and it answers back that, you know, Alexa, et cetera, that's all artificial intelligence. It's been around for years, but this year in particular, artificial intelligence is now the new theme for the markets. Everybody's jumping on that bandwagon. Of course, NVIDIA's had a huge run uh, really since the beginning of this year. But now Washington, potentially with a threat here to the chip industry itself, more potential sanctions on China revolving around chips, et cetera. So markets are set to open you know, a little bit mixed this morning on the news. Chips may be a little bit under pressure this morning in particular, uh, just because of kind of what's going on. But again, we're now moving into the last couple of days of the month. Now, as we talked about yesterday in particular, the market had come down. We had, uh, we said this yesterday that the markets had had several days of selling pressure had come down to the 20 day moving average. So expecting a bounce yesterday was not surprising. And we got that bounce yesterday. In fact, it was a fairly healthy bounce. We were about, uh, up a little over 1% yesterday on the market, bouncing right off that 20 day moving average. Uh, still on a sell signal here, but this did reverse that corrective action we were getting in the overbought condition. That reversed here a bit. Uh, this morning, markets, like I said, are, are, are a bit mixed because of this uh, news on semiconductors and just really the fact that we're moving into the last couple of days of the month. We're still going through that rebalancing process. Um, you know, it's been going on now for the last week or so, so we may be fairly close to the end of that rebalancing, and then we'll get into the month of July. So, you know, we could very well see, um, you know, markets kind of pick up some steam here 
once we get through this next couple of days. And again, you know, kind of challenge these previous highs. But there's a lot of activity in the markets that continues to be on the very bullish side of the camp. Trend continues to be positive here. The overall activity sentiment of the market is very positive. But again, we're getting a bit extreme on some of the indicators like our sentiment indicators, our um, you know, volatility indicators, et cetera. Uh, volatility remains extremely low. And in fact, this has been one of the issues that continues to kind of perplex a lot of the markets itself, which is despite the fact that we have all these other things that are going on in the market, volatility as a whole remains extremely compressed. And the interesting thing is, is there is a correlation between the volatility index and Fed rate hikes. Now there's a, there's a lag between this, but because Fed rate hikes tend to impact the economy, Ultimately, because of that lag effect, volatility tends to be low um, until the Fed stops hiking rates. And then volatility tends to catch up with those interest rate hikes because, of course, by the time the Fed is stopping hiking rates, there's some impact going on with the economy that leads to an increased volatility in the market. So this is something certainly worth paying attention to. Um, we, we're not in a position just yet where we're about to see a spike in volatility, but that's the thing to really keep a watch on. This extremely low level of volatility suggests that a 5 to 10% correction sometime this summer would certainly not be out of the question, and that would certainly set markets up for a fairly healthy rally into the end of the year. So Anyway, keep a watch on this. Make sure you monitor your portfolios closely. The next couple of days could be a little bit bumpy. We'll see what happens, but that's what you need to know before the bell. Okay, coming up this morning, uh, Danny Ratliff will be joining me. We've got a lot of stuff to get into, talking about interest rates. We've got to talk about money, all kinds of stuff. So stick around. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Oh, Red, I declare. I plum missed that candy coffee. Whatever am I gonna do? Don't you worry, little darling. We'll watch it again on our YouTube channel. Why, Red? I never. The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all of our past presentations from Candid Coffee and Lunch and Learn to special topic discussions and all of our live show recordings preserved for you. Subscribe now to the Real Investment Show YouTube channel or look for the link on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is uh, the Hump Day edition of the show. And of course, if it's Hump Day, that means Danny Ratliff is here. Just to make it more difficult for a Wednesday. Um, Danny, good morning. How are you? Morning, great. How are you? Yeah. So uh, you, you went, you uh, tried to immigrate into Canada and they kicked you out? They did. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. I would too. They did. Yep. So did you have a good trip though? I did. It was yeah. good. Did you catch fish? We caught some fish. Yeah. It was a lot of travel. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, you know two days kind of middle of nowhere, two days back, but uh, it was good. Nice, nice. Yeah, I like fishing. Yeah, so. I'm trying to play a little catch up. <laughs> did you? Did you? But did you catch up? I'm getting there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting there. Like I'm never truly ever caught up, but no. you know, I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah, it is. It is just it's just the nature of the beast. Um, so a couple of things, you know. Back, you know, so back in. Um, the you know late 70s 
early 80s interest rates were trading at you know 14 15 16 percent on the 10-year treasury and it's interesting because back then i actually had a client um for several years um he's passed away now but he had bought treasury bills back 30-year treasury bills back in the 80s and was making 12 percent a year on his money for 30 years and he just bought the treasuries and was sitting on them. That's all he did. He just he just bought the treasuries. They were sitting there. And, you know, he never really thought about it much. And it was just, you know, he was getting this this check every month was coming into his account. And that's what he was living on for 30 years. Right. And he never really thought about it much until all those bonds came due. And he had to refine and, and basically had to figure out what to do. And all of a sudden he realized that you could no longer get Treasury bonds at 10, 11, 12 percent, right? The the yields were two, three, four percent, which is a drastic realization at that point because this is also the difference that we talk about today. And, uh, you know, and to a lot of degree is that, you know, there's a lot of young millennials now and Gen Xers, not Gen Xers, sorry, but millennials and Gen Zers that are out complaining about you know, the economy and wealth and all these type of things. Well, a lot of this has to do with interest rates. And the one thing that people really don't understand is that low interest rates are not a good thing, economically speaking. And I know, the, I know you're going to scratch your head here for a second and go, well, wait, wait, what do you mean? Because if interest rates are low, right, I go finance all this stuff cheap. And that's true. We have. The economic growth in the economy since really 1990 has all been driven by a massive surge in consumer-related debt as we've been financing everything because rates kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Housing prices have gone up. Why? Because I can afford a lot more house. At 4%, I can buy a lot more house than I can at 10, 11, or 12%. But at 10, 11, or 12%, I know you may not like hearing this, but at 10, 11, or 12% on interest rates, I buy a house I can afford, right? And because interest rates are higher, that keeps the, 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 the growth of asset prices to some degree relatively tapped to economic growth. And this, is the, and this is the key part of this, which is interest rates are always a function of economic growth. Economic growth and inflation drives interest rates. That's where it always winds up. So if you're expecting, you know, interest rates to go up to five, six, seven percent. You know, we hear these people come out in the media all the time it's like, oh, interest rates are going to seven percent. No, they're not. Because the economy can't handle seven percent interest rates because of all the debt. <clears throat> and so this is kind of an interesting issue is that really speaking economically, low interest rates are not healthy. They're a they're a reflection of economic growth and inflation, and economic growth and inflation is running at two percent, not at eight and nine percent. We were like we were back in the seventies. So, you know, there's a, there's a really interesting byline to this. But the reason I'm telling you this is because Howard Marks made a, an interesting comment. Now, Howard, Howard Marks is regarded as one of the greatest investors, you know, in the markets alive today. Um, runs Oak Tree, uh, Oak Tree Capital. And invest a lot in, in distressed credit and these type of things, but a very, very brilliant investor. 
And whenever Howard Mark, he, he's kind of like E.F. Hutton, right? Whenever Howard Marks, you know, talks, everybody listens, right? Because he's been around, he's seen it all, heard really it all. good newsletter, but doesn't right. speak all that often. So he, he does. You do take it into account when he does. Absolutely. So he made an interesting comment. He said interest rates aren't going to decline by another two thousand basis points. That was the headline, though. Yeah. And so that's the headline. That's the headline. But then when you put it in context, he says in nineteen eighty, I had a personal. A loan personally at 22.25%. And in 2020, I was able to borrow at 2.25%. So rates went down 2,000 basis points. Not going to happen again. There's no room for it. Right. Well, I agree because we're not going to get rates back to 22%. Right. Well, you're not. And, and to go from where we are now, where we are at the 10 year treasuries, 3.7 ish today. Yeah. So the most you have right now is 370 basis points of downside. That's, the, that's it, right? Correct. So, I mean, you just you just uh, that once you get to zero, that's it. I mean, <laughs> you can't go any lower than zero. But but, you know, he's right, though, is that, you know, there's no room in the economy if interest rates go up much. Right. So let's say we get interest rates up to seven or eight percent. All of a sudden, can you imagine what happens to the housing market, the credit markets, et cetera? Well, I, I think that the, the big difference is when these loans were 22 percent versus what we have today, even mm -hmm. on historical average, interest rates are not all that high. But when we start looking at the other side of the, the ledger, so to speak, as far as what's associated with that, the amount of debt is astronomical. So back in the 80s, people saved for things. Right. You know, you, you saved for that vehicle. You saved up for a home. You didn't have a whole lot of debt. But now we have the financialization of everything. Everything is on, you know, an annuity stream for these businesses. I mean, look at the iPhone. Now, mm -hmm. it went to 1000 bucks. We've talked about this often. Right. You know, and 1000 or 2000 Well, are they really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not... <laughs> when I thought at a thousand, I was like, who the heck's going to buy this? And they put everybody on a payment plan. Then they say, yeah. oh, look, you can upgrade every year or two. So now you have that, you know, you have loans or, or payments in perpetuity. And that's problematic. And that's one of the issues why we can't see this enormous change in interest yeah. rates. But, 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 but again, this is also, but the, also this is a big, what you're talking about is also a big contributor to this wealth problem that millennials and gen z's are facing you know they want to blame the stock market for it they want to blame capitalism oh capitalism sucks capitalism's broken no it's the fact that you're going to run out and finance a 3700 hundred dollar dollars vr headset from apple that's the problem and why because you can do it at zero percent interest or whatever deal that apple's giving you there is no such thing as zero percent interest by the way it's all baked in correct you're paying interest. It just depends on how you pay it. So when you run around and go, oh, yeah, I financed this for free. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know, it's all fun and games until it comes to the math part. But once you figure it out, you're actually paying. If, if you said, look, if, here's your choice. You can have 0% interest on financing this vehicle, or you can pay 4% interest over here. More often than not, if you go back and run the math between the actual cost, you're better off paying the finance charge than 0% interest. Because again, they're baking that in. And when they bake that into the price of whatever you're buying, you're paying more for the item than probably you could have bought it bought it for otherwise. So, you know, again, there's no free lunch and things, but you know, this is, but you know, Danny, you're talking about $2,000 iPhone. Yeah, this new VR headset's almost 3,800 bucks. Well, I mean, if you can live in that alternate universe, <laughs> I mean, why not? There's. Why not? <laughs> not I don't. I'm not going to go down. I start a tangent on this stuff. <laughs> but 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 back to the point here is that, you know, the, this idea of low interest rates, et cetera, you know, is, is not really a sign of a healthy economy. And that's the thing that we need to really understand is that if we have higher interest rates, 
higher interest rates are a function of economic growth and inflation. And so if we have higher interest rates and can sustain higher interest rates, that means the economy is growing fairly strongly, which is now benefiting more people because if the economy is growing stronger, people are making more money, wages are going up. And, and as a function of that, people are borrowing more money, which supply and demand. If I'm borrowing more money, more activity in the economy, you know, building property, plan, equipment, those type of things, then interest rates are going to go up accordingly. And that's fine. But at, at you know, 2% interest rates or 3.5% or interest rates, that's what you should expect out of economic growth. And again, for, you know, before 2000, we used to consider 2% economic growth as pre-recessionary. Right. That was a bad thing. If you were at 2 percent economic growth, oh, my gosh, we're very close to a recession. We don't want to be there. Now we're just hoping to get to 2 percent economic growth <laughs> and sustain that. And keep inflation there and, and keep inflation there. And again, if you're one and if the Fed's inflation target is 2 percent, do the math. What's your economic growth rate going to be? Right. It's going to be 2 percent ultimately. So, again, this is, you know, we're not working ourselves a better position. Of course, you know, we just very quickly added another $700 billion to our national debt. So we're now north of $32 trillion on national debt. That's all tied to an interest rate. So the more debt you have, the more interest service you've got, that means less money is available to go to productive investments. And this is the, ch this is the challenge for most households, which are heavily levered with debt. If I'm spending all my money paying interest payments on things and paying interest on my debt. Yeah, I have all these nice things, but I can't, I, but I don't have any capital. Can't save for the future. That, that, well, not only to save for the future, Danny, but I can't use, I don't have any capital or cash flow to take advantage of capitalism, right? Yeah. This is the whole part we, we everybody complains about. It's like, oh, capitalism sucks, it's broken, it's, it's only for rich people. No, it's for everybody, but you can't participate in capitalism. I can't go buy a rental property and get into having some rental assets working for me, or I can't go start a business if I don't have any cash flow. And I'm up to my eyeballs in debt because nobody's going to loan me more money, you know? So it's the basics of, of economics and finance. All right, quick break. We'll come back uh, on the other side. Are you helping your children financially? We've talked about this before on the show, but the interesting article that, that came out in Market Watch talking about this very issue that Danny and I have talked about. We'll come back and talk about that right here on The Real Investment Show. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, Danny Ratliff joining me. Um, you know, one thing that we've talked about in the past, and this is always, you know, kind of an interesting conversation that we have with clients is that somewhere along the way, you know, this this wasn't the way with my parents, um, for sure. And when I was growing up, my dad was like, uh, when you're 18, you're on your own, kid. You know, good luck to you. And, you know, there was no paying for college. There was no, I mean, basically at 18, you know, check got cut off at home and you were on your own. You're an adult. You can vote and you can go to, you can go to war. So, you know, and by the way, we could drink back then at 18. Yeah, you can pay bills, right? So if you can do all these adult things, you're on your own you know, good luck to you. And so 18 out of the house and, you know, on my way, um, you know, it's, it's, and then of course, Dr. Spot came along and all of a sudden we had to do timeout rather than, you know, public lashings, which I grew up with, um, you know, and then, you know, this became this idea that we have to, you know, now provide all this stuff, right. You know, this is where we generated helicopter parents and, 
all these type of things. And, and there became there became this idea there was a moral obligation to help your kids you know, forever, right? And when we have clients that come in, it's like, oh, well, I have to pay for my kid's college. As an example, I'm just using that as an example because that's a real-time thing. Um, but I have to pay for my kid's school. I have to do this. Oh, my kid's in trouble. I, you know, I have to give them a down payment for their house because, you know, they're renting and they're about to have a baby, and so they have to have a house. So I'm going to give them a down payment on the house. You know, there's nothing there's nothing inherently wrong with that, and we all love our children. I love my children to death, right? Um, but are we actually helping them? And more importantly, are you really helping you? Right. And this is and, and, and this becomes a real situation that we deal with quite often with parents who feel like they're doing the right moral thing for their kids, but don't realize the implication of the decisions they're making. Danny, you, you run in this a good bit, don't you? Oh, man, Lance, I run into this all the time. And initially, I think it usually starts small. We say, listen, we're going to keep them on our health care. We're going to continue to pay for their cell phone bill, their car insurance, uh, just small little bits and pieces. But I think we're doing the kids a disservice in many times by not starting them off initially by having them actually understand the cost of doing business of life. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because what we do see is that later down the road when they're 40 and 50, sometimes even older, that, you know, I've had clients come to me and say, look, we're buying a house for, for Johnny because he needs he needs a place to live. Well, hold on. Why can't he buy it, buy it himself? Well, his credit's not that good. Or it's just too expensive to live in that, that area. Well, have him move somewhere else. I mean, <laughs> you know, you need to create some of these these habits at a young age. And I think that starting small with like the phone bill, the health care, um, that helps kind of push them off of thinking of you as, you know, the backstop. And so once they get a little bit older the problems begin to get much larger. And I've seen people who, you know, they may have the means to do so, but it does disrupt their overall financial plan. And you say, well, okay, well, why are they not, why are you buying this? Well, you know, and, and had an example because somebody's, well, they, they don't, they don't make enough money. Well, then they don't need to get that house. They're going to pay you rent. Oh yeah. They're paying us rent. And I can tell you, it never happens. Almost never. I mean, it does. Now, there, there are exceptions to the rule. I mean, I have some clients whose kids are awesome and they pay them religiously. Um, it has been a good transaction for both of them. Now, most very, of them, very small percentage, most of them <laughs> have parents who have been very good about giving them guidance financially along the way. They make good decisions and they make them sign a contract. Mm. The ones that say, Hey, I'm going to do this. And, oh yeah. I'll pay you 2,500 bucks a month. They don't ever see that money. Yep. Not always, but most times. You know, one thing that we started with our kids as soon as they turned 16, right? I told you this before. We made our kids go out and get jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they and at 16 in the state of Texas, you can't really work um, for, like, you can't go to work for HEB. You can't go stock groceries, whatever. You have to be 18 for that. No, you could. You can. No. Trust me. Well, it changed because I, I, I started off at Randall's. Well, no, no. So did I. But, yeah, the, now now HEB won't hire you unless you're 18. Okay. Right? So, and and but but they went out they became lifeguards and there's other stuff you can do at 16 right so they they yeah. got jobs and they were getting paid but as soon as they started getting paid we made them file their own taxes right now they didn't owe anything right because they were working part time but we wanted to get them in the habit of every year that they had to get on and we just set them up on intuit right turbotax whatever and but got them to go through the process and the habit of getting their documents together and filing their taxes, even though they they owed nothing, right? It was it was really kind of a senseless process to have them do it. It was the whole point of getting to learn how to do it and and know that they had to do it every year by April fifteenth. They had to get that done. There was a deadline to yep. that. 
Well, I'm sure that first paycheck, you know, I can remember mine like, wait a second, you said I made how much now? <laughs> oh, no, that was the big shocker. And that's actually been one of the greatest things about, you know, teaching kids about the economy and what goes on is that, yeah. that you know, they, they, they oh, I'm making, and like my daughter, she's making $7 an hour at the time being a lifeguard. And she brought home her first paycheck. She'd been working like 40 hours. She, she was suntan, you know, top to bottom, you know, the tan lines everywhere from different bathing suits she was wearing and she'd been working like 40 hours the whole week she got every shift she could she came home she was so excited about this paycheck and then she looked at it, it as about half the value of what she thought it was going to be because of all the taxes she's like they stole she was convinced the company stole from her and we had to go through a very like it took us two hours and she's in tears over this whole thing convinced the company had stolen her money yeah you feel like it yeah yeah and i was like honey that's that's not that's not the company this is the government this is this is what all these taxes are for and it's interesting now because because of that process that when they hear stories about people getting on welfare and doing those type of things they're offended by it because like i'm paying for that I'm like, you're not really paying that much for it but yeah you're right you know you're, you're paying into that and that's and that's something that that has become much more apparent to them now as, as, as the impact of taxation and you know, where it goes and, and what that means. So it's funny to watch that they're learning this, this fraction. It is. I mean, and, and, you know, I think that's good to start at a young age. And even in introducing them, not just having to go on and file their own taxes online, but at some point introducing them to other professionals, so, you know, yeah. CPAs, attorneys, getting them to understand some of these things at a young age will really set them up to be successful further down the road. But it's also a disadvantage, I think, when we say, hey, we're going to go pay for all of their college. And, you know, look, I'm not a big fan of debt unless it's used strategically, right? Right. right. Which I think you can use and use leverage in many good ways. But unfortunately, we see it just, you know, it's, it's misused so often. But go get, go let them get the student loan. You don't want to, I see a lot of people bankrupt their retirement just for their kids to go to college. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? Our, as far as we get older, our human capital is diminishing. We don't want to continue to, to you know, we're setting them up great, but, um, you know, you may be paying for it much later on in life, and you, know, you better hope they do very well because you may be living with them. Well, I think, I think that's the biggest takeaway from this is that, you know, look, if you've got plenty of net assets and, you know, you can set aside you know, whatever the money is, and it has no impact on it's your financial gift. future. Well, no, I'm just saying it's like, you know, say, let's say I'm going to spend a hundred grand on I'm, my kids. I'm just throwing out a number. My kid's going to Harvard. So I'm going to pay a hundred grand to go to send him to Harvard. And if you want to do that, that's fine. But, you know, as long as you can do that and have, and that doesn't impact your retirement at all. Right. I mean, it's like, I can, I can drop a hundred grand on Harvard and it that has zero impact on me being able to retire. That's up to you. But what the problem I see is that a lot of people are basically bankrupting themselves mm -hmm. to pay for college. And to your point, you know, you may think you're doing them a favor now, but you're not because you're going to wind up living with them, you know, when you get yeah. into retirement. And that's not really the lifestyle they want. You know, we talk about the sandwich generation, which is a real problem right now. It is. Um, which is where, you know, young individuals, you know, uh, Gen Xer, you know, kind of younger Gen Xers and you know, older millennials, they're trapped between having to take care of their parents and take care of their kids all at the same time, which keeps them from being able to save and plan for retirement because they're spending all their money taking care of two generations. And that's not that's not fair on them. And so, you know, you certainly don't want to make decisions now that will be unfair to them later. I think that's the bigger takeaway here. No, I agree. Look, there's plenty of people that can do this. There's no issue and no impact to the financial plan. They've done a lot of the hard work at an early age. 
but there's also that other portion that has not. I mean, we know the numbers, Lance. Yep. I mean, we talk about them frequently. And, you know, that's where we create problems. And we also don't create that. that I, think, I think there's a good thing when people start at a young age, understanding how money works. Because you give them confidence. You give them some responsibility. You also give them, you know, the understanding they have to work within certain parameters and start to understand how to utilize a budget. I mean, you know, back in my day, you know, we actually had to, to you know, have budget, have a checkbook and balance it. Nobody sees that anymore. And right. so, you know, I think it's different. In, are you going to provide them with software or are you going to go old school? You know, Richard loves writing things down, like even like Christmas gifts. He has a, a log that he has for like how much he spends every year for each person. Uh, well, that's what we call him Scrooge, too. Yeah, so been blown out of the water, I think, here recently. Yeah. But, uh, you know, things that, that there are many ways that you can do this. And I, I don't think there's any one you know, right way, but you need to find the right way that works for you and your family and start this at an extremely young age. And you're, the kids are going to be much better off. You're going to be much better off. And they're not going to look at you as a piggy bank because they're going to have their own money. Now, you want a gift fund. You've got a lot of assets. Great. Go for it. Just remember. Most of these are gifts, not yeah. loans. Yeah. And it, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, you know, there's an old saying is like, if you loan money to family, just treat it as a gift because you're probably not getting paid back. Yeah. That's just, that's just, and that'll save your family relationship more than anything else. Just if you give money to a family member, don't ever do it as a loan. Just give it to them and go on with life. Yeah. Yeah. No, we've, we've, it's had, not worth uh, the hard, it's not worth the hard feelings later. Well, shoot, the kids here recently, they, uh, they misbehaved a little bit and they wanted to continue to do some of the things that they do, like tennis and, I said, all right, well, you're going to pay for it. What? <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about a fit. Oh, yeah. My 10-year-old was not happy. She's like, I'm paying for this? I said, yeah, you are. Go upstairs. Get your money. Yeah. Uh, the no, other, I, the middle one was like, yeah, what, what do you need, Dad? How much? I know. No, I've, I've done that with my kids more often than not. And and I tell you, it's, it's, it's when they have to pay for something, all of a sudden they have a lot more respect for yeah. it. They won't have that behavioral problem. Yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about my son when we come back after the break. All right. Because I made him get a job. All right, I want to hear. Yeah, talk about it. Come back after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Of course, Danny Ratliff this morning. When we come back, we're also going to talk a little bit about the stock market not being as calm as it seems right now. Um, and I'll tell you the story about my son. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So I said just for a break, I'd tell you this story about my son. Um, my, my son is wicked smart. Um, he scored 1560 on his SAT, didn't study for it at all. It, it just He's super book smart. And, you know, I told you the story before about how he got busted in high school for taking everybody's physics test and charged them 20 bucks a pop. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so he's, he's, he's now at a and he's, he's going to school. And, you know, so he got some grants, got some scholarships, and he had to take out a, a small student loan. Again, I don't pay for college at all. It's not an option for my kids. They pay for it themselves. So he applied for grants. He applied for scholarships got some money, needed a little bit of a student loan to help fund the difference of, of paying for college. And so I started, and of course, he has to pay the bill. Well, right now, it's just 25 bucks a month that he pays. It's just the basic interest payment. Now, you don't pay for the student loan until after you graduate. That's when, the, that's when the, these interest rates and the payments all hit, right? So we're talking about these student loan payments restarting 
in September or by September, which is on average about $350 a person. So I've been sending him these, these, I've been telling him about this for a while. It's like, it's fine. You've got this loan. Just realize you've got to pay this back. And so we've been talking about this for a while. Well, he, he's, this has been weighing on him a bit and he now realizes it. And he's now taking 18 hours a semester, uh, 18 hours this summer. So he just finished his freshman year. He's actually going to go into his second year of college as a junior starting at the end of the summer because he's been taking so many hours. And, and his whole goal is to get out of college as fast as possible. He's, he's studying engineering. He wants to get out as fast as he can so he doesn't have a lot of student loan debt. Okay, very smart. And I was like, well, why don't you get a jump on this and start you know, getting some money made to help reduce the amount of student loan you've got to take next year? So he went and got a job at Sam's. Okay. Uh, the warehouse thing. Sam's Club. Right. Sam's Club. Thank you. And uh, I was like, this is great, right? And you're going di- to get a discount, you know, get a free membership so you can buy plenty of food at Sam's. They don't get it then, and they do not get an employee discount at Sam's Club, by the way. You get a free membership to shop there, but you don't get an employee discount. Spend your money here. Yeah, uh, they do. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> but he has to work, so he stocks shelves at night. So when you go in and, you know, you see all those things you know stacked up there he's stocking those shelves so he works from midnight to 8 a.m every every day then he goes to class from nine o'clock to three o'clock and then he gets home has to study go to bed get up and do this do this run again so it's it's really starting to weigh on him but it's an interesting story from the standpoint that he is really figuring out that the education is really important because he does not want to do this job for the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, he's, he's starting to get this very clear picture about, you know, what it takes and, you know, kind of this, if you want to succeed in life, you know, it's not sitting back and taking it easy and, and it's not just going to come to you. You've got to work for these things. And, but it, but this whole, this whole graveyard shift he's pulling from midnight to 8 a.m. in the morning. Um, it's changed his whole person in a month. I've seen his whole personality change from kind of being your typical freshman college kid, right? You know, he was, he was partying with his buddies, having a good time. And now he can't because he's got to be a bed by six o'clock to at least get six hours of sleep before the shift starts. So all of a sudden partying stop. It's all about school study and work. That's all that's going on right now. So, yeah, I can remember those days. It's yeah. my, my, one of my, so my dad, one of the caveats, he helped me in school, but he said, you had to get, have good grades and you had to always have a job. And so leading up to my senior year, I said, well, look, I'm not going to have to rely on this. So I worked three jobs. Mm-hmm. I would work apartment maintenance. Um, and then the first thing I had to do every day was you had to go pick up the dog poop. Okay. Like you talk about a job where you're like, this is awful. This is a crappy and job. And then what really sucks is like all of your, you got a bunch of buddies that live in this apartment complex. You don't want to see your, your friends, you know, or like girls out there seeing you go out and scoop up poop. So did that. Then I'd go to school. Then I would do data entry in between classes for the state of Texas. And then, um, then I worked at an outlet mall as a manager of a store, which was so super slow that I, that's where I did all my studying. Yep. So then shut that down at eight or nine and then, you know, have a couple hours you want to do something and then start all over at five, five in the morning again. Yep. So yep. I know that was like a very big eye opener. I was like, huh, maybe I need to study a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it will definitely change your perspective. OK, real quick, um, a couple of topics to get into uh, this morning. I did want to talk a little bit about the VIX. I touched on this this morning at the open that the VIX is very, very low right now. 
there is absolutely no volatility to the market, according to the VIX. Now, part of the problem with the VIX is these zero data expiration options, which have now become a much larger portion of the overall options market. And that is probably, I don't, you know, there's no anecdotal evidence of this right now, but there is some logic behind the, the view that that change to the dynamic of the options market is suppressing volatility to some degree. However, there are a rising number of people taking out bets now on a market decline. And normally when you start to see that, we should potentially, in theory, start to see a pop in the VIX in the next couple of months. And again, this isn't, you know, the the beginning of the next bear market. But as I said earlier today, the market's up, you know, 12, 13% this year. We've had a very strong start to the year. This is the best start for the NASDAQ ever in its history in the first half of the year. Um, so a 5 to 10% correction this year would not be surprising at all. It could happen this summer. Market sells off 5 to 10% over some reason, whatever it is. Uh, the Fed says, hey, we're going to have to hike 12 more times. Whatever the news is, you'll get some type of, of corrective action. That will actually be an opportunity to add exposure to markets, but that will coincide with a rise in volatility to some degree. So, you know, keep a watch on the VIX because I think it, you know, it is sending a message. We just don't know for sure the timing of when that message will actually be delivered. That's kind of the important part. Okay. Uh, I saw, uh, Danny, I wanted to ask you this uh, this morning because I saw this really interesting article. It was in, uh, I think, Think Advisor was where I saw it. But it was talking about how you could boost your retirement income by 29%. This is pretty amazing. A 29% in, in retirement income by using an annuity. And, you know, you see these articles a lot. But, and I'm not, and, and again, this isn't a bash against annuities at all, so don't think I'm saying that because I own an annuity personally. There, there's many reasons to own an annuity. There's many reasons to own whole life insurance, and you have to use these tools properly. Uh, so this isn't a bash against the annuity, but it's a question about the article because, you know, it says that if you buy using an annuity, you can combine that with a really aggressive investment strategy and then create more income in retirement. And, you know, I, I've, I find some questions about that. Is that, is that actually a true statement? Well, I think it depends on how you're looking at it. And what I just glanced over what you said, and it, you know, it's kind of vague. So in a lot of ways, it, it assumes that they're saying, "Hey, invest in and get an annuity, and then over time, you can make make a change towards that and and invest more aggressively in it." And I think it's very important to understand what type of annuity that you're buying, that you're going to purchase, and what type of riders are that are associated with. Right? There's many different times. There's variable annuities. And a lot of times we can see that the fees add up very, you know, very quickly on something like that, that essentially you may have to make four or five percent if you have a lot of riders on it just to break even. And that's where I think that it's difficult. But if you buy an annuity with guaranteed income, it does give you a little bit more flexibility because you're not relying as much on your portfolio of variable assets that you can typically invest a little bit more aggressively. The problem is for many people is that, look, they say, hey, I'm in retirement. I need to be super, super conservative. I need to be in all bonds or cash. And they're so far in the bunker, they can't step out to ever get any actual return. Where, you know, I think that there could be that could be the good side of something like this, where, you know, you take that three-legged stool approach where you have multiple sources of income. That helps quite a bit. Delaying Social Security helps. Um, you know, I saw in here this said if by delaying from 65 to 67, uh, they can support 16% more annual spending with 15% less downside risk because 
once again, we're not having to take or withdraw as much income from that variable asset. So I think that utilizing all of these in a specific way, understanding when to take Social Security, how to use an annuity and what type it is, I think is extremely important. Lance, I see a lot of people that, that call in or come in and clients that say, hey, I have this old annuity, take a look at it. And it's it just, it may have been a good annuity, but it was never used properly. Mm-hmm. And then you get to a disadvantage where you've paid for it for all these years and you didn't get the growth that you should have out of it. Now, there's fixed indexed annuities, which is ones that we can provide with guaranteed income associated with it, limits your downside. Those can give a little bit more upside, but the problem is that you're typically capped. Right. So if you're doing it for those income purposes, and like if I was going to look at one and look at an illustration, I always want to look at, assume, say, what if this makes no money, but you're going to get an 8% growth on the income benefit? That may be perfect for what you need if you've got four or five, six years, or even 10 years, you know, to guarantee that roll up where you're not taking that, those funds and, and walking away with it, but you're creating a paycheck for later. That can be uh, it's kind of a nice feather in your cap from an income perspective. Yeah. And look, and, and, and as always is the case, is it's just, you know, these are tools. And there's nothing wrong with these two. You know, a lot of people have bad taste in their mouths from annuities. They've been told terrible things about well, annuities. Well, they're, they're, they're sold. They're not planned. And that's well, the biggest that's problem. That's the biggest problem. But look, if you use the right tool for the right job, it's great. You know, annuities are great, but, you know, you have to really – they're very expensive. You know, you can you can have expenses running 3 4 5% inside of an annuity because of all the different riders. That, when you start adding all these different features, right? Oh, you don't want any downside risk? Okay, well, that's going to cost you. Um, well, it's going to cost you with the upside. They're not going to give correct. you as much upside. Yeah, all these things cost you, right? And so, oh, I want to guarantee – you know, I want this feature or that feature, whatever it is. That's fine. They'll give you anything you want, but each one of those bells and whistles costs you a little bit of money. That's right. And so they can get very expensive. And then the other thing is, is, you know, an annuity, if you want to leave a bunch of money to your kids, you know, you have to factor that into annuities as well. That's correct. So because those those terminate when you're done. Well, th- there can be options where you with, do actually with riders. get. Yeah, you, you can get a death benefit or <laughs> there's still money inside the account. So yeah. that's, you know. Each one's different. Yeah, exactly. Just you have to just factor all these things. That's that's the whole point. It's just you know they're not just a plain, simple, easy thing. Be careful of being sold one. That's that's the that's the thing. Plan for it. Don't sell it. Put it within a plan. Understand how it works within your own financial plan. You will be thankful for it later. Absolutely. All right. Uh, that wraps up the show for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Michael Leibowitz is going to join me uh, after he got back. Everybody's been on vacation. I've been stuck here by myself. Uh, Michael will be back tomorrow, though, and we'll talk about the Fed, what happens next with the next meeting in July. Get by the website. His latest article on the website now as well, talking about treasury yield and versions. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.